There you have another dose of audio medicine from Green Zone Hero here on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Today's episode is one you want to listen to. Uh, This United States Army veteran was a member of the 75th Ranger Regiment. In fact, I didn't know a lot about his experiences until just recently, and most of it right here on this show today. He's uh, calm, he's focused, he's cool as a cucumber, and as a matter of fact, was awarded the Bronze Star Medal with the V device for the things that he did while on the ground in Mogadishu. And of course, we all remember the Black Hawk Down incident. Mark was right in the thick of it, and I think what he has to say today is something that can resonate with a lot of us, especially what he says about freedom. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. On this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, we have Marcus Eugene Good, uh, Army veteran. He actually goes by the name, he's known to his friends and family as Mark Good. He is a, he's an incredible guy. He's one of those low-key guys that he doesn't say too much, but he's diligent and he works hard. And there's some things about him that you're going to find rather interesting. He's the type of guy that just keeps things uh, to himself, but uh, amazing. He was, like I said, a U.S. Army Ranger, and uh, he was called upon to go to Somalia. We all know about uh, Mogadishu and the the Black Hawk Down uh, incident. And Mark was right in the thick of it. You're going to hear a lot about that. He was attached to Bravo Company, 75th Ranger Regiment, 3rd Army or Third Army Ranger Battalion. He's going to talk a little bit about this. And I know I don't want to embarrass him right off the bat, but, you know, Mark is a recipient of a Bronze Star Medal with a V device. And it may not mean very much to those listening. To those of us who are in the military, that means a lot to, to get a medal like that shows valor and courage under fire and all i can say is you know mark welcome to the show uh appreciate you giving us your time here on straight out of combat radio oh thanks you give me too much credit (laughs) (laughs) well you know and that's what i said you know we uh, you know it's interesting you know I, i for those listening i've known mark and his family for 20 years and they shopped in my store when i had a retail store here in sarasota for many years never even had a clue that Mark had even served in the military, uh, just was always that quiet operator coming in, buying gear. His family loves backpacking and hiking. And I didn't find out until like 15 years later that you had even worn the uniform. I don't know. I just felt like I kind of just went and did my job and got out and it was time to move on. So I was, but yeah, I, I, great memories of your store going in there. <laughs> Well, this is, you know, I'd love to talk about Envioneers, you know that, but, you know, this is a story uh, where we honor uh, the wisdom that you guys and gals bring back from pretty horrific and chaotic uh, environments around the world. But before we even get to the Black Hawk Down and, you know, your experience in the U.S. Army Rangers, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and, 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 and why, why you even, you know, raised the right arm. Tell us about that, Mark. Oh, I don't know. I grew up in a patriotic family. My dad was, mom and dad were patriotic, and uh, um, 
I, I, I don't know. Ever since I was a little kid, I was always, you know, playing out in the bushes and pretending like I was some kind of soldier fighting the Nazis or the Japanese or something, you know, and, and I just kind of grew up that way. And then, uh, you know, I was always an outdoors guy and active and I love to swim. And then I just, you know, I didn't go in the military right out of high school. I waited a, a few years, almost four years. I don't know. I just really got the itch to go in. I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. I went and talked to all the recruiters. I could have ended up anywhere. Um, but the one thing I really wanted to do is be a, a paratrooper. So when I went to the recruiter and they're like, well, your best luck being a paratrooper is going to the army. They have all the big airborne units and they're like, you know, by the way, we don't, we, this is back in relative peacetime. So they're like, you know, we don't have any slots in the airborne units right now, but if you want to be a paratrooper, you can join the Rangers. You know, I, I didn't really know a lot about it. I, they showed me some brochures. It looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, and so, uh, that's how I ended up going in. So who, and you know, you know, talked about coming from a patriotic family and I, you know, I knew your dad real well. And, um, was he, who, was he your idol? Who, who was your greatest mentor coming up? Oh, it was definitely my, my dad, um, you know, and my mom. Uh, I, I did have, my dad always said he would have gone into military when he got, when he went to, to try to join the military, he, they wouldn't let him in cause he had flat feet uh, and he wore glasses at the time and, and he was also married and in college so they're like you know we're not taking you it was uh, during vietnam and uh but you know he was always reading about it and always telling me you know about the stories that he read mostly world war ii stuff and and uh, he's the one that got me kind of excited about being a, a, a paratrooper going into the army eventually I had a couple uncles that were both in the army. You know, I, I really thought a lot of them as well. And I remember listening to their stories and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I wasn't looking to, to become a general or to gain really any rank. I wasn't interested in any of the sort of military bureaucracy type of thing. I was, it was like this thing where I just wanted to go in and just kind of prove to myself that, you know, I could do it. I didn't want it. I, I never really planned on making a career out of it. I just wanted to go serve my country. Um, it was more of a, a proving to myself something, and that's pretty much it. So what did you do? I mean, did you go to infantry school first and then to ranger training? How does all that work, you know? And tell us a little bit about well, the ranger training. Well, if you – I signed up to go right into 75th Ranger Regiment, and a lot of people – you know, don't realize and not that it's good or bad or indifferent, but, you know, a lot of people that are going to the infantry have an opportunity to go to the traditional army ranger school, but they don't teach you there what you, what you learn to do in, in, at the 75th Ranger Regiment. The 75th Rangers are the special operations unit. They're the rangers that they talk about the cliffs of Point de Hawk to Omaha beach to, you know, Burma, the Philippines, all the way through Vietnam. And, and uh, so, you know, nowadays they do a lot of like airfield seizures is one of their most important jobs. And that's the 75th Rangers. And so what I did is I went into basic training, 
we had a bunch of guys at a platoon that had probably at least 12 of us in my platoon and, and probably a good 35 or so guys from the whole entire company that were slotted to go to the selection program, the Ranger selection. It, now it's called Ranger assessment and selection. Back then it was called RIP. It was the Ranger indoctrination program. And I think by the time we got through it, there was only a very small handful of us from my original basic training platoon. So we, you know, that to answer your question, we went to basic training. You had to go to airborne school. You had to go through your AIT. And then from there you went to, you were assigned to the 75th Ranger Regiment. You were assigned to their headquarters. And they they put you through a few weeks of just hell. And uh, it was during the winter for me and for a Florida boy. That's kind of hard, even though it was only at Fort Benning. Uh, there's a big, big temperature difference between here and Fort Benning, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, you, you, had to, you had to pass a combat swim test. You had to pass some really fast road marches and runs and... Uh, by the third week, you know, our class had gotten real small. I think there was 220 of us that began that RIP class. And by the time I finished, there was about 60 of us. Um, and then after that, you're assigned to the Ranger Battalion. So you went to the Ranger Battalion. Was that out on the West Coast? No, that was right there at Fort Benning. Huh. I spent my whole four years at Fort Benning basic, from basic training to the third Ranger Battalion at Fort Benning. The, First Ranger Battalion's uh, Fort Stewart, which is near Savannah, Georgia. And then the uh, second Ranger Battalion is out on uh, up by Seattle, uh, out in that area. So what did you, what do you think you learned the most in that kind of training? Well, I kind of learned, uh, kind of learned where your limits are, your physical and mental limits. You know, I think that you know, it, it's a mental head game as well as it is a, you know, physical. And when you get out, you know, when I got assigned to Third Ranger Battalion, they, they turned around and sent me to EMT school. You know, a lot of guys, most of the guys were going to this course called the Expert Infantry Course. And this is back again in relatively peacetime. So this is one of these badges that you can earn, you know. In lieu of a CIB, it's called an EIB, and it's an infantry thing. And it was real sought after at the time, and it was kind of a bummer. I was like, man, it's a, I, I'm going to EMT school. Not, not too many guys went to EMT school, and I was, you know, I was too afraid to fail because I was brand new. They're really hard on the new guys, at least, at least back then. I mean, this goes back, you know, we're going on 25 years ago now. I passed. I, I, got, I was, became a national registered EMT. While I was there, and we're, they were having such a hard time getting medics through the RIP course that they kind of like assigned me as the platoon medic. And I was kind of like, you know, I got my fingers up, air quotes, you know, of the acting medic. But, but I had to carry the aid bag. But they didn't want me to not do the regular training that I would have done had I not been at medic. So I was like a medic slash two or three gunner in my ranger squad. And I was the platoon medic, and I was a two or three gunner in the squad, and I went out and I did like all like double the training. And when I wasn't, you know, like there were there was sort of like down times where I would go with the medics because our platoon medic became our company medic. Our platoon medic was was a big help in helping me pass EMT school. He's one of like the instructors, and so I would go down to the platoon or to the company aid station and and actually train with him. Sometimes help do like sick call and and he was constantly training me up and you know 
I thought it was interesting. I was like, well, it's great to know all this medic stuff, but hopefully I won't ever have to be the actual medic come going to combat, you know, and, but that's exactly what happened. You know, one thing led to another, even though they borrowed medics from other companies when our, when Bravo company went to Somalia, they found that we were still short of medic on chalk four and, and my, my platoon leader, Lieutenant Didamaso, he looks around, he looks at me, he goes, oh, good's a medic, good'll be chalk four medic. And there you was, go, man. So, you know, so. all that training paid off, right? So, yeah. So how long were you, you know, at your duty station before you got deployed? And what was that mission to Somalia all about? How long, <laughs> how long before you guys took off? Uh, it, funny you ask. I mean, we, we, I was assigned, I was assigned to the third Ranger Battalion, Bravo Company, second platoon. It was like maybe February. We had done, you know, besides me going to EMT school, we had done several deployments, really good deployments. One was in Korea. The other one was in Thailand where we got probably some of the best training I've ever gotten the whole time I was in the military. Up until we actually started training for the Delta Force before we went to Somalia. But so and then we did some really hard squad evaluations. And, you know, our company was like, you know, must have been favored for third battalion um and in the rangers they they rotate as far as which battalion is going to be like on the high alert status it's like rrf1 is what they call it and you had two and three so anybody needs can you know any anybody in any ranger battalion would have been called to go somewhere very quickly but there was always one battalion that was ready to go first so we were on kind of that status and I I just gotten married. I was married for about two months, and to my wife, same wife I have now, the only wife I ever had, Deborah. Good for you. I know her well. And uh, you know, we, here we were measured, married for two months, and they actually we we had some Ranger School slots, and they did send guys. You know, the, most of the guys that have been in any infantry, you know, any more elite infantry unit or special operations unit, you know, most guys are going to get a chance to go to ranger school regardless. And keep in mind the ranger school, the traditional army ranger school is not run by the ranger regiment. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of instructors that have never served as actually active rangers. And then my new squad leader's like, you know, I just get back from being married. He was a new squad leader. He's like, you know what, go on this next training mission with us to Texas. It's going to be really good. Um, it was something we called bilats, is bilateral training. Yeah. And uh, we trained. It was a big special operations thing. We were taking an airfield like over and over and over again in every every different situation. And we were jumping on it one night. The other night, we'd be in a Ranger special operations vehicle, and you know, just it, it was good. But the but during that those three weeks in Texas, somewhere after the first week or so, all of a sudden. Uh, our our company was gathered together really quick and they said we'd been alerted for a real world mission just bravo company and so it was all hush hush and we packed all our stuff and flew, flew from like fort fort bliss texas to fort bragg north carolina and there we were brought to a compound kind of out in the middle of nowhere and and uh sort of set up where we we're going to sleep and they, they bust us into another compound compound 
I didn't know anything. I was I was a private. I was like an I was still like an E two at the time. So you're just, just following orders, just doing what they tell you to do, right? Th- that's right. Yeah, and just keeping my mouth shut. And uh, so we show up at the uh, um, it was a Delta Force compound, and it was I mean it was like the real deal. It was something out of the to me it was something out of the movies because our Ranger barracks were kind of old and 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 not very modern. Um, we showed up this place and they had you know, these big fold down barriers that folded down into the road as they let you through and they didn't check everybody's ID. And we went into this place. We went in down some hallways and went into this conference room that had like no windows in it. It was very new looking. It was very kind of high tech. It was, uh, and you know, they, they had a big screen up there and they had a general get up there and, and brief us on what this mission was going to be. And that's when we found out what we were going to be doing. Which was, it was a bunch of warlords and stuff. Is that what was going on? Yeah, there was one warlord in particular, uh, Mohammed Farah Adib, yeah, that needed to be dealt with. He was, uh, you know, the, the United Nations was in Somalia. They were trying to, a lot of people might remember, I mean, there were, there was extreme famine over there. The people were starving. They were you know, dying every day. There's hundreds of people dying from starvation. The UN was simply there trying to feed these people. And these warlords were causing trouble. They were ambushing UN convoys. They were killing the people on these convoys, taking the food for themselves. And it was becoming a real problem. Somalia didn't have a stable government. These warlords kind of ran the place. Um, And this was a mission... We'd been in Somalia, our U.S. troops had been in Somalia for a while up until then. A lot of people remember the reporters on the beach as the Navy SEALs were running up the beach, you know. It was kind of a somewhat comical, you know, because it was like this massive invasion that, or, that was supposed to happen. And, and I don't know how massive it was, but there were like Marines and SEALs and hitting the beaches. But there was no resistance, you know. There was just pockets of resistance, let's say became established there and over a year or so later i mean i had a buddy that was in the marines and he was you know had already been to and from somalia once and he was kind of telling me about it and all and and, and it wasn't like a big deal but we were kept and we kept on being briefed that there was a, a contingency a mission that may come up that's going to require at least a ranger company to go over there and support the delta force because they might start hunting down these warlords of course these are briefings that we're getting that are that are secret you know very so you had to have secret clearance to be in the 75th rangers so as i was going through the ranger indoctrination course there was people from the army somewhere that were actually calling like friends of my parents to inquire about me because i had to you know gain this secret status i don't know how big of a deal it was evidently was you know i had clearance that people in the, the other units wouldn't have, you, you know, it was a, all part of the uh, special operations community that, you, you know, uh, a lot of OPSEC information. So, but, uh, so you, did you understand the mission? I mean, did you, they briefed you on the mission and so you felt like that, hey, we got to get this done, you know, tell us about the 3rd and 4th of October, 1993. Yeah, they, they told us what the mission was I and mean, it was pretty clear. They needed to catch this guy and all his cronies there was to catch or kill them. And uh, the mission, you know, the Rangers were going to go in as a, like a 
secure like a whole block, blocking positions, while the Delta Force would go in like a SWAT team, kick in the doors of these buildings and, you know, try to catch these guys and, and you know, based on the intelligence that we were given. So we, we'd gone over to Somalia and we were living in, on the airfield there and uh, we had, I don't know, we had conducted six or seven missions total. And we had actually on one of our missions caught a very, very high ranking member of this, of this clan. It was like one of our most successful missions. And we had gotten in a couple small, at least one small firefight. You know, no, nobody was killed. There was maybe one guy that was slightly injured from what I remember. And he was, you know, didn't have to leave or anything like that. He was like, you know, like a very light graze across his leg or something like that. But, you know, that was the most exciting it was. And we did a lot of like playing volleyball and we, went to, we were going to the beach up until somebody not from our unit, but somebody from another unit got eaten by a shark. So they didn't let us go to the beach anymore. And, and uh, we, we, our, our uh, mission That's there. Put an end to that right away. Yeah. Yeah. And our, and our mission there, we, we were part of a, like a 400 man total task force. And keep in mind, a, a good number of these were support. Um, we had a small SEAL team with us, like a like a counter sniper team. We had uh, a Delta Force unit there with us, and then we had a company of Rangers. And at the time, this was the biggest like special operations uh, task force that had ever been formed for one mission. Um, that's what they told us. I don't know. And uh, so. We were, uh, to get back to the 3rd and 4th of October, we were, it was just, it was on a Sunday, and we were, the guys were playing volleyball, people would lay up on the uh, shipping containers and try to get suntan or just find things to do, you know, and every time we get ready to go on a mission, somebody would always run into the hangar and yell, get it on. That was like the big thing. As soon as somebody yelled, get it on, everybody dropped what they were doing and started getting their gear on because we knew there was going to be a mission. We, we, the, the aircraft that we flew in and out of these missions, we were also a, a Task Force 160th, or the, or the 160th, it's a special operations helicopter squadron or, or unit. And uh, they flew us around. They're the same guys that fly like the Navy SEALs and, and, uh, any other they were they were formed after that desert one failure back when they were trying to free the iranian hostages um they're like the best pilots in the world and they really are i mean these guys were uh something out of a movie um just calm cool and flew these dangerous missions all the time so we go they go get it on we get our gear on we were, we were briefed real quick our, our chalk leader we we're divided up into chalks which is kind of like a squad that flies all together on an aircraft and uh, they told us, look, we're going into the uh, the Bacara Market area. And we all knew that that was like the worst area of the city. That was the most like clan uh, controlled, um, you know, worst part of the city that we can go into. So we're like, oh, hey, you know, okay, well, this is going to be, this is going to be kind of something. And like, by the way, when we fly in there, we're not going to fly out because there's too many tall buildings. So the convoys, these we had these convoy Humvee convoys, like armored, like lightly armored, they, you know, that were made up of Rangers that would come in 
and evacuate everybody. Like we're not a lot of the missions, we were able to just you know walk a couple blocks to an open area that the aircraft would come in and pick us up and fly us back. So we kind of knew that this may be a little bit more of a mission, and I think a lot of us were anxious to see a little bit more action. And uh, I mean, the rest is history. There's I was on chalk four. Um, we we had injuries and casual casualties right away um and it, it incapacitated uh, chalk four fairly quickly um we i think out of i think there's only like usually we had 15 guys i think we had a couple guys that were out on a detail like guarding a a, a convoy of uh, some other convoy somewhere so we, we were missing two guys so i think there's like about 13 of us and out of the 13 i think there was at least one dead and maybe seven wounded we had like at least seven purple hearts handed out if not more i don't know how much detail you want to be going on i mean on on my end of it and i was of course the medic again so when we flew into that mission you know and everybody tells a story can tell the same story there's you know out of the 13 guys that were on there or, and the 12 that lived you know we all probably have a little bit different story it's just the way i think the way it goes the way we perceive things when we're out there um your, the way we, we remember things well your buddy got hurt right off the bat from what i understand right so i was the last one out of the right door and you know left door right door we dropped the fast ropes we all fast roped in it was a long fast rope we were missing an ammo bearer and uh PFC Todd Blackburn came from a, a gun crew. He wasn't, that wasn't his position on this mission, but being that we, they were missing the, the guy that was the assistant gunner to the uh, M60 gunner that we had on, we had two of them on each uh, chalk, on each Ranger chalk. And so they uh, turned around obviously and said, Hey, you know, Blackburn, you're going to be the AG on this because you know, the other guy's gone. They loaded him down with a whole bunch of extra ammunition. He was very, and he wasn't, you know, we've been fast rope and training in for, you know, this particular mission. And he had not been the, the AG. So he had, he was quite a bit lighter. And he, so with all this extra ammunition, something happened on the way down the fast rope. I, we're not sure what, because he doesn't remember um you know when he eventually woke up he was uh you know he said all i remember is grabbing down on that rope and heading down um i headed down right after him we were in what's called a brownout condition it was it was very dusty that the the rotor wash was kicking up all the dust from the streets so he only had to go down a few feet before i didn't see him you know waited a few seconds i grabbed the rope was the last one in that door um, my, my chalk leader, Sergeant Eversman, I'm pretty sure was the very last one on the other door. And when I got to the bottom of the rope, I took like two steps and there he is. He's, his, his helmet's gone. He's, his one eye's open, one eye's shut. I, I thought he was dead. You know, when I first got to him for sure, I was like, oh my gosh, he's dead. You know, and he's, he's bleeding out his ears and his you know, and, and everywhere he's got a broken arm and he's just, and so, but as a medic, you do your thing, you draw, you know, it's basic first aid, you drop down, you lean over him, you check if he's breathing, you make sure his airway is not obstructed. And that's when I realized his airway was obstructed. He had a big wad of tobacco in his mouth and he was literally not breathing because of it. 
<laughs> so like, ah, oh, you know, and I wasn't, I was, I didn't chew tobacco then. So I was, it was probably a little bit more grossed out by it than most people were, you know, because a lot of guys back then, it was a way to stay awake. And so what I looked at him, you know, you do the, the head tilt and the chin lift and you open his mouth and you take your finger and you sweep that stuff out. And as soon as I did that, he was, he gurgled up a bunch of blood and and started breathing very labored breathing started breathing again so uh, and you're and you're doing all of this while you're still you know in enemy territory under fire is that correct we we were we were getting we were getting shot at right away we we're getting shot as we were coming down the fast road so fortunately these guys weren't very good shots these these warlords and these clan members they weren't they weren't well trained at all, but there were, I don't know if a lot of people understand this or not, but there were a couple hundred, we call them mercenaries that came in from out of that country. And later on, it was revealed that these guys are being hired and, and funded by Osama bin Laden. Um, so these guys were a little bit better trained, but, you know, it was like with all that rotor wash and everything, I mean, you know, they, they weren't hitting us as we were coming out of the helicopter. Um, it wasn't until a little while later that the, the other two helicopters were shot down, the two Blackhawks. Now, well, now, were they coming in with reinforcements or when they got shot down? or? No, they were our only close air support. This was during a... This is during a, I don't want to be political about it, but our uh, president at the time, our administration didn't want to be like flexing her muscles over there in Somalia. It was our task force commander, you know, had repeatedly told us that they are constantly requesting like heavier backup because they knew the situation could arise. They knew the situation could arise where we need the, the air support that we always train for. You know, we have we have FOs with us, and we have Fordway, uh, uh, we have Air Force like Ford Ford Airway controllers. We had Air Force guys attached to us on every single training mission that we've ever done up until now, and they're still attached to us. But since they didn't have any Air Force to call on, they just fought alongside us like another like another Army Ranger, and did a great job. So we we had nobody to call on. It was these. Uh, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Battalion, they were always, they circled constantly. And they circled and they lit up the area. They lit up the rooftops. They, you know, anybody that was getting closer to us, they they shot up. And it was for because of them is why so many of us survived. I mean, it could have been much worse. And then they did fly in ammunition back and forth out of the city to, to the crash site. Now, the crash site was secured by a big number of our task force. I wasn't at the crash site. Um, a, a number of our squad, our, our, our whole chalk, our whole chalk four was eventually evacuated. If you watch the movie, the movie condenses the whole thing kind of into chalk four. And that's not really how it happened. Chalk four was, like I said, was, was, was shot up pretty pretty good early on in the mission plus we had the fast rope casualty so as uh, some of us were trying to get him out the the convoys ended up making it out to the to the original mission site the mission was accomplished they caught a bunch of guys chalk four was actually dropped in like the wrong place one block over so we it was a little confusing at first because we were getting like 
shot at from directions we didn't think we'd be getting shot at, and that's when we realized we weren't exactly in the right place. Um, our you, Humvee. Are, I'm sorry, but you did manage to get Blackburn out. He was extracted the next day or that day, or you, you got him out, right? That day, yes. Our, our Ranger Humvee convoys eventually made it out to us, and he was loaded up uh, thanks to the help of uh, Sergeant J.C. Col- uh, Joyce, Casey Joyce. I'm sorry, I'm getting my new team leader at the time was Sergeant Casey Joyce. I mean, he just became my team leader before we went on this Somalia mission. Yeah. We, we, we had different roles on the, on the mission. So he, he actually is the one that helped organize and gather up some guys and helped me and, and a handful of guys carry Blackburn like maybe a couple buildings down, maybe almost a block down to where this Humvee convoy thought we were. And wasn't, but I mean, they, they were armed and they were shooting, you know, returning fire. And um, we had to stop several times along the way to literally drop Blackburn and return fire. We we're getting shot out from the rooftops and out windows and, you know, anywhere where they could shoot at us from. And um, so Sergeant Joyce was, he was killed not too long after that. It was, uh, you know, he, I saw him. He was probably one of the last guys I saw from my chalk four because I disappeared with this convoy with Blackburn because we were. I was holding, you know, I was I had he had I had IVs in him. I had like an oral, like a J tube in his throat. Um, and so as I was, uh, uh, Sergeant Joyce told me load him up. He kind of closed the the tailgate to this open Humvee, and he kind of looked at me, and I looked at him like hey, maybe I should come back with you. And he looked at me, he's like, no, stay with Blackburn. You'll be all right. And he kind of gave me a thumbs up. He turned around, uh, went back towards where the rest of our chalk was. Because we, we had taken several injuries, but, you know, the, the other Rangers were taking care of him. One guy got his thumb shot off. Another guy got shrapnel in his face. This all happened. You know, my, my aid bag was obliterated. I mean, everything was taken out of it and being used um i had very little supplies on the on the trip back to the airfield but these guys that were driving the some v i wasn't sure who they were they didn't have any identified markings on their uniforms i think they're um a couple of guys possibly from that uh seal counter sniper unit I, I to this day i'm not sure who they were but they had ivs and stuff with them so I was able to, to get another IV on them because it took us a while to get back because our convoy coming back was getting ambushed uh, several times. We actually took another killed and, and a handful more people wounded just trying to get Blackburn back to the airfield. Uh, specialist uh, uh, Dominic Pila uh, was shot in the head and, and it happened. He, he was in an armored Humvee just right in front of us. All of a sudden I heard some gunfire open up as we're coming through this section of the city and I just happened to look up and look right at him and, and I could just see him just his whole body go limp and he slumped down and it was so chaotic. The guy right next to him in the back of this, I don't know if you know, like a car, it was like a hatchback Humvee and it had like Kevlar plating on it. And the guy next to him didn't even know what happened until minutes later because we're all returning fire. And, and the guy that ran out and shot Dominic Peeler was, shot quite a few times by 
myself and, and, and the guy that was in the uh, passenger side of our home because the guy ran right out to the road. Seconds later, it would have been us that he was shooting at. And we were in an open Humvee. We were in a cargo open Humvee. And he had like a, a really good shot at all of us. But the guy ran out just just a split second before, like from behind a building. And he was pointing at the Humvee in front of us. And, then, and so, you know, that that's where I was. And I didn't find out until a while later that Sergeant Casey Joyce was killed. It was heartbreaking. My, my wife had become friends with his wife. Um, not too many of us were in the Rangers. So the wives, you know, the, the few of them of the wives created a pretty tight bond right away. And him and I would talk about our wives once in a while, like on a Saturday, they would let us make a, a quick phone call back to our family. And it was monitored. Like there were people sitting there listening to you on this phone call, <laughs> making sure you didn't give away. I don't, I don't know what we could have said that would have changed the mission, but we weren't allowed to say anything about the mission. You, you uh, know, it, it sounds to me like that whole mission, you know, on the third and fourth was just chaos, chaos from the minute you guys left to the, to the minute you guys got extracted. It sounds like it was just pure and total chaos. It was. I mean, that's what I, that's how I looked at it. It was very chaotic. And, and, and part of the problem was we just didn't, we weren't at the time, we didn't have the C-130 Spectre support, you know, that we always trained to have. We didn't have any of this, anything that we really needed to get out of such a bad situation. Um, we had, you know, we had to fight our way out. Um, and uh, I think that's what made it so chaotic and dramatic. I mean, eventually we had like, Pakistanis out there with their armored vehicles and their tanks. We had Malaysians with their like amphibious armored vehicles getting the guys out, getting getting a lot of the rangers out. A lot of the rangers still had to walk. There was that famous Mogadishu mile they had to run to get to this to, to get to a secure area. Um yeah. you know that I wasn't with that group, but keep in mind we we're split up. And when I got back to the compound I thought everybody was like right behind me. I mean, I thought the mission was done and I couldn't understand what happened. We're, you know, we're, I'm waiting at the hospital because they're working on Blackburn and I'm waiting to see if he's going to die or not die. And then somebody comes in this little field hospital, which is right across from the hangar that we were living in and says, you know, they're gathering every ranger available to go back out into the, into the city. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, they're, you know, that's when I, that's because they're trying to evacuate the uh by this time a couple of the aircraft had crashed at least one of them if not both of them had crashed already and uh so i go back over there and i say hey look i'm i'm ready to go and and uh, it, i was with now rangers from other platoons but we all knew each other because we were in the same company we knew each other well enough and i hopped back and i hopped in the back in the same spot that I, in the back of a cargo Humvee. It wasn't the same Humvee, but it was one just like it. And in the same spot, I just saw Dominic Pila get shot. And I'm, we're, we're heading out the gate of this airfield, and we're heading back out towards the crash site. And I'm like, my goodness, I feel vulnerable because they had packed the bottom with sandbags from because they were afraid of like driving over a mine. And this is before like IEDs. They just had landmines back then. And, so we're sticking way out, and the guy next to me is like six six, really tall. I mean, half his body sticking out. So I, I I told him, I don't know if you realize 
what was going on, but I was like, you know, I just saw Pila get shot sitting back here on top of all these sandbags, you know, and, and, and a Humvee just like this. He was sitting just like this. He was sticking out of the Humvee. I said, let's get rid of these sandbags. He was, he outranked me. So he's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I just remember driving down the road and tossing these sandbags out on the side of the road. And sure enough, we got ambushed. I mean, we had RPG. We were getting shot at from, from close range, from far range. Um, and we were in a much more defensive position here now. We, we were lower and we were more aware. It was kind of chaotic like that. I mean, I you know, you could hear people screaming over the radio. It was a long time ago, but it sparks a lot of memories talking about it. Well, I appreciate you, you know, tell, talking about it. And you, you obviously made it back. You obviously helped save that soldier's life. And, you know, tell me what you learned being in a chaotic situation like that. Would, well, you know, and, and would you do it over again? Yeah, I mean, if I had to, I, I, it's easy for me to sit here and say I would do it again. I mean, I definitely would have done it again. I was definitely ready the whole time I was in the military to do it again. Um, but I did learn that a lot of people will shut down come in a traumatic situation. Other people kind of go into this, like, tunnel vision. They can, they, and the tunnel vision sometimes is good, sometimes it's not, but it helps you concentrate on directly what's in front of you and you do your job. We were so well trained. And I'm a faithful guy too. So the first thing that I thought when we started, when I was working on Blackburn in the middle of the street, one of the Delta medics eventually came over and helped me. And he helped me a lot because he was far more experienced than, than I was. He was a much higher rated medic, but he helped me for a short amount of time. Then he ran back to his team and they disappeared. I mean, we're in the middle of the street. We're getting shot. Like I'm looking up at the walls around us and there's bullets ricocheting on all, on all these walls. And I thought, man, these guys are horrible shots for the first, first place. They're horrible because they're not hitting me, you know, I'm like, and, uh, but I just thought, you know what, if it's my time to die, you know, if God wants me to die, I'm, he's gonna let me die if he if he wants me to you know live and obviously it's to to help my comrades get out of this the best they can and uh, that's just how I, I thought about it when you're in a unit like that most of us are just way too proud anyway to we'd rather die trying than be considered a coward or, or just fail at doing our job and that because that's that's the ultimate test and going to combat. No matter what kind of training they put you through in the, in the military, I think going to the, the ultimate test is seeing how you're actually going to function when somebody's shooting real life bullets at you. Well, you know, I know your family and wife were definitely, and your sister, uh, were definitely happy that, that you made it back. And, uh, you know, you talked about it being 25 years ago, but, you know, tell us about, you know, the transition. And, and we don't have to go into great detail, but. You know, what did you deal with and, and how did you deal with that? I know you're very successful now in your own business. And, and you know, what kind of wisdom or what, what would you like, like the non-veteran population to know about combat veterans in particular and your brothers and sisters, uh, you know, that wore the uniform that come back also. So about your transition, what you want those non-veterans to know and what you want your veteran brothers and sisters to know. And then I've got a couple of more questions here towards the end, but uh, tell us about that, Mark. You know, I, 
I, I don't, you know, veterans, for the most part, especially the ones who are just getting out, they, they have a, a, a high respect for authority. You know, the, there's always, there's always going to be bad apples in any match, but on average, most veterans are going to be, they're going to not be afraid of hard work. They're not going to be afraid of working at different times of the day or night. You know, night shifts are a normal thing, especially when you're in in something like the Rangers or a special operations unit where you're used to working throughout the night. You know, being able to put up with a bad situation and just put your head down and grind through it, that's what these veterans have to offer, you know, first and foremost. I mean, they're, they're going to be loyal. They're going to, um, you know, there's not a lot of bad situations in the, it, it's kind of aggravating. I mean, you know, I'm in the kitchen and bath business and I do a lot of cabinetry and I'm in a lot of people's houses. And it's amazing how stressed out people get out of the most ridiculous things, you know, things that just don't really seem to matter to me, especially from all we've been through. Um, you know, I, 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 I hear you on that one because it used to drive me nuts at the shop when, you know, people take 30 minutes to figure out what color socks they want to wear. And I'm like, well, you know, you're going to have hiking boots on top of them, and you're out in the woods, and nobody's going to see them. And it, it was yeah. like, it's like, holy cow, are you kidding me? Just get mm-hmm. some socks, you know? So I, I'm, I'm sure you see kind of the same thing with your, you know, with the work that you're doing now. I do, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I feel that, you know, we've been through some hard times. What it, what it helped me do, too, is we started, we became a part of a, uh, a Christian mission down in Haiti, where we were living pretty primitively and, and doing some pretty hard work down there. And, but to me, you know, the, the military trained me for that. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't a big deal to me. A lot of people come down there had a, really struggled with it, really struggled with how primitive it was, how we were li- living, how, you know, living without air conditioning or heating and being damp a lot of the times because it's hot and humid in summer and, and, you know, having to put up with dirty living conditions and, but that that's the kind of thing that veterans have going for. You know, and I you know, when you do say that and you point that out, Mark, it's actually like, you know, the ability to be able to and it's so cliche sometimes for us to say it, but you know, adapt and overcome. And you know, it sounds uh, you know, that's kind of what we say, but it it means a lot when you transfer that to the civilian world that some of the things we may be exposed to here aren't really that difficult when you think about it right i mean the only thing that makes them difficult is because our society sometimes will um have expectations and we want to meet expectations to to fit properly in in our society that's the way a lot of people feel i think that's the way most of us feel yeah most situations i mean and being flexible you know part of being a ranger the rangers part of our training is to be very flexible and the mission can change situation can change at any moment and being able to adapt to that new situation. So, no, you've actually made a successful trans, you know, transition to civilian world. And what do you think that the uh, your brothers and sisters that are making the same transition? What do you think they need to know? And and then, you know, before we get ready to sign off here, um, what do you what does freedom mean to you? So, you know, message to your brothers and sisters, and then what does freedom mean to you, Mark? The message of my brothers and sisters is, you know, no matter what you did in the military, you know, you you, you stood up and, 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 you know, you did what 
a very few percentage of people in the country are willing to do. I mean, you know, I have a, a, a close buddy of mine that was in the Air Force for four years, and he's like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to take any credit for it because I sat in an office a lot and, you know, looked at a lot of maps. And I was like, look, you, you stood up, you left your place, your home, you went and served your country and you had to do what whatever superiors wanted you to do, it, it, whenever they wanted you to do it, you know, and, and there's a lot to say for that. The people that are getting out, I, I would just, as far as like maybe... First of all, I want to thank them for their service, first and foremost. Anybody who goes into the military and serves this country should be thanked. And I would you know, recommend that they, they apply for those management jobs. And even a low-ranking guy like me, I mean, I got out. I was in E4 when I got out. And I didn't have much, uh, you know, I wasn't ever looking to get promoted or anything. I mean, I was, I was probably up to be promoted, but... Um, you know, I wasn't planning on enlisting, and you know, I just uh, I did my job, did it well. I was given, you know, some of the peacetime awards too, and uh, um, was at the Ranger Battalion for all four years, honorable discharge, and coming out as an E4, you know, I, I went to work for a company and immediately became a supervisor. You know, and, and I think people in the military they have the skills, no matter how low of rank, to, to supervise other people because they've seen how it's done. They see how to motivate people. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get used to supervising people that weren't in the military. And I, I would say to employers out there, I know most military employers want to hire military people. And people, non-military employers should hire military people because they know how to respect authority and they're going to do what they're told. I'm real good at doing what I'm told. <laughs> That's when your wife told me she said that to me. <laughs> I forget where it was at. And I said, you know what? I think you're right. So, you know, what does freedom mean to you? And let me ask you this. Do you think everybody in America is afforded that freedom? Whew, that's a tough, I mean, I, mean I, know, I know the answer to that in my heart. I, yes, our, our country... Everybody, I think everybody deserves to be free in the world. Most people in this country haven't earned our freedom. It's been a long time since we've been in a world war. I mean, it's it's we're generations away apart from that World War II generation where the women worked in the factories while their men were deployed to war to fight the evils of this world. You know, for our freedom. And I I, I love history. I know that. You do too, and, and I read the history and, and how people pulled together in this country back then, and how much they appreciated uh, being free, and how patriotic people are. And now, you know, people just don't see it that way. And, and I mean, it means everything to me, and it should mean everything. Some people, you know, just assume that they have the right to be free. Well, no, we had to fight to be free. I mean, yes, I think freedom belongs to everybody, but. You have to fight for it. And you have to earn it, and then you can't take it for you, you, you can't take it for granted because you know we could be like many of these other countries where people are still oppressed and, and, and not free, and not they don't have freedom of religion. Um, there's so many people out there that act like that are just so unkind here in this country. It's like they 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 don't appreciate what they have, and they don't know what people in our military from past wars uh, 
have sacrificed and suffered to make sure that these uh, people can live in this country and have the right to be selfish. Definitely some great wisdom there, you know, and I concur on on all of that. You know, it, it is a responsibility, and we do tend to take things for granted, and we and we really need we need to reevaluate that, you know, because when we used to go to South America, I used to come back to the states, and it was like, you know, <laughs> we got so much to be grateful for, and I was always thankful to be back home safe. You know, how can people get in touch with you, Mark, if they wanna if they wanna ask you more, and you know, even find out about your business or if they just want to make contact with you, how can they find out about that? Tell us about your business real quick and, and how they can, how they can reach you. I used to have a, a much bigger, uh, like countertop business that I sold, uh, about nine years ago. And now I, you know, I've downsized a, a lot, uh, primarily because it's just so hard to find good help. But, you know, I'm, I'm a millwork specialist. I, I build and or install, uh, any kind of custom millwork, including, higher end finished carpentry and a lot of a lot of cabinetry I'm, I'm mostly into the cabinet end of it but as far as how to get in touch with me you know i, I have a cell phone <laughs> and uh I'm, I'm really not on facebook but um it's probably not hard to find me people find me you know eventually so your your business is in the venice florida area by the way west coast but do you work do you work further south or primarily just in that area? No, no, you're actually out in Mayaka City. No, no, we're here in Venice. Well, my address is Venice. I mean, I live on the Mayaka River, but oh, I live okay. on the southern part of the river, south of 41 here. Um, but no, I, I go up to Sarasota a lot, Venice, Northport, Inglewood, mostly Venice and Sarasota. Um, we do you know, want a, a big higher-end cabinet install up in Sarasota, not too far away from your old shop up there. I'm busy. I'm real busy. Well, good. I'm glad to. A couple of things. Anyhow, thank you for your service. And, I, you know, I'm so glad that you made it back, made it back safe. And I know that, you know, knowing your family, knowing you and your wife, your sister, you know, I took your sister to Mexico on that one trip. She's just as hardcore as you are. And, you know, knowing your mom and dad, you know, it's certainly been uh, special for me, too, because, you know, they actually, I got to tell you, you know, your mom and dad helped send my kids through school. So, you know, all, all the backpacking equipment, I remember your dad, man, he was like a hardcore backpacker. backpacker. So I know I know where you get that from. And uh, I just, you know, it's people like you and families like yours that make being an American uh, something. And, and, you know, very grassroots. And, and I love you guys. And I just, you know, thank you for your time with me today on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my story. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Before they burn it down